That brings us to the last and final vision. Now, this takes up the last nine chapters of the book. And most of it is really detailed. Just like the building of the tabernacle. And we're not going to read through all this because it's a lot of measurements. The inner gate was something cubits by something cubits. And, the, and unless you're like a geeky architecture, which there's nothing wrong with that because I love that kind of stuff, but that's very few of us, you probably don't really enjoy reading about all these numbers that much. But this is the final, and it's the vision of the new temple. Okay? This is where some people are like, got you. You made this huge argument. In the book of Samuel, when God made a promise to David in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, that he, would, he did not want a house to be built when David asked for it. And instead, he was going to build a household, a family line, a Davidic line for David. And one day, this, a son would come from that line. And then he made a big deal when Solomon built the temple in 5, 6, 7, and 8 of First Kings, that God did not want a temple. And he made all these arguments. I had like six or seven points why that temple was messed up, pagan, and inappropriately done. And then all of a sudden we get to Ezekiel, and God spends eight, nine chapters on the building of the temple, and you're like, there you go. God wants a temple. Yeah. Let's look at it. He says a vision of the new temple. Now remember... Does God want a sanctuary where he dwells with his people? Absolutely yes. But does it have to be a physical building? No, because in the Garden of Eden, did he not use temple language when he described the garden? But was it a physical building? No. And when God built the tabernacle, was it really that impressive, amazing building? Not really. Okay, the inside had a lot of gold, but overall, it was a 15 by 30, 45 foot tent that was really kind of just porpoise skins on the outside. That's not really wowing. And then when David said, I want to build you something bigger and better that wows everybody, God said, no, if I wanted that, I would have asked for it. So God has made it very clear that it has nothing to do with the buildings. Even when we get to the book of Hebrews, he says, those were just external temporary things but now we have the sun and why would you want to go back to something like that when you have the son of god so all these things make it very clear that it's not really about a temple it's about a sanctuary or a location that we can dwell and walk with god and there's no sin or discord or rift between us and him that's the point. And you can use the word garden. You can use the word temple. You can use the word tabernacle. You can use the word heaven. But the definition is still the same. Where we dwell with God face to face without any kind of rift or what Paul says in Ephesians 2, no barrier wall between us and God. And that's the main idea here. So, God uses, now remember, he allowed them to have a king. Did he want them to have a king in the way that they wanted it? No, but he allowed them to have a king because he knew that they were going to persist in it. And sometimes he gives them exactly what he's forbidden because of the per persistent stubbornness of the people. And then he uses it as a judgment against them. So he did the same thing with the temple. 
Now they have a temple. So the other thing you're going to say is, well, Ezekiel or in Ezra and Nehemiah, God gets mad at them for not rebuilding the temple because he wants a sanctuary. But remember, he's going to allow that temple to get destroyed too. So it's not about the temple anymore. It's about what the temple represents. And nobody in Ezekiel and nobody in Ezra and Nehemiah can relate to the tabernacle. They've never seen it. They can't relate to the garden. They've never seen it. So what they have seen and experienced is the temple. But here's where God does something really cool. He uses the temple picture and the architecture so that they can relate to it. But when he begins to describe it, he goes beyond a physical building and he uses a lot of Garden of Eden language to make the point that, one, this isn't about the architecture of the temple. It's really about a restoration back to the Garden of Eden. And that's important. The picture he's painting is of an architectural temple because that's what they can relate to. But the metaphorical language that he's using of it is all Garden of Eden language and New Covenant language. So, for example, if I'm speaking to a kid and they're not getting the gospel message, but I know he's obsessed with football. I know I'm picking on football tonight. Um, He's obsessed with football. I might say something like, you know what? Football is like Christianity. <laughs> okay, just like you got the coach in football, you got Jesus. Okay, and just like you're like all these players in the team trying to work as a team, you've got the body of Christ. And just like you're trying to make touchdowns, you're going to witness. Now, I know that's a horrible picture, but I've heard analogies like this before. Okay, or you're like, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. No, it's not. And we use all these analogies, right, all the time. Do you really want somebody to walk away thinking that God is literally a three-leaf clover? Do you really want them to walk away thinking that church is literally just a football game? No. You're using the architectural picture of a football field and players to connect to them in such a way, but you're using metaphorical language that goes beyond the architectural picture to push them into that abstract, bigger concept that you're trying to get them to understand, right? That's why we use analogies and stories and parables. Is a parable really about a big tree that you want one day in the backyard? No, the parable is about the mustard seed represents the kingdom of God growing and getting bigger. That they walk away and say, wow, Jesus really wants us to plant mustard trees in our backyard. She's going to be like, you missed it. Oh, the, the, the parable is about a pearl that a guy finds in the backyard. And you're like, well, I need to be finding pearls now. No, the pearl was an unclean object in Israel because it came from clans, which were bottom feeders, which means the pearl is a Gentile. And you're supposed to go out and seek the lost and the unclean and bring them into the kingdom of God, and you're willing to sell everything to get that one unclean person in. And that's the picture. So he uses architectural pictures that we can connect to with metaphorical language to teach a bigger concept. That's what he does here. He's not promoting the rebuilding of a physical temple. He's using an architectural picture that they can relate to, then using metaphorical picture of a language of a garden to push them into a much bigger picture. You think that everything I've been doing is about rebuilding a building that's 90 foot by 45 feet? You think the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross is about getting a stone building rebuilt in Jerusalem one day? 
No, it's not. All of that is about the restoration of the Garden of Eden. But you can't relate to that. But what you can connect to is the temple. And I'm going to use the temple to push you deeper into what I want for you. My dream is not a rebuilt temple. My dream is a rebuilt Garden of Eden. And we do God injustice when we keep saying, well, when they rebuild that temple over in Jerusalem one day, that's when Christ is coming back because that's what it's all about. And I know we don't think it's really all about that, but we really put that as a linchpin. No, what it's really about is God rebuilding the garden. And when you, what you should be looking for is not a physical building. What you should be looking for is a rebuilding of the garden. And that's what Ezekiel is going to do here. So in chapter 40, verse 1, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, and the 14th year after the city was struck on this very day, the hand of Yahweh was on me, and he brought me there. By the means of a divine vision, he brought me to the land of Israel and placed me on a very high mountain. And on it was a structure like a city to the south. And when he brought me there, I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring stick in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, watch closely, listen carefully, and pay attention to everything I show you. For you have been brought here so that I can show it to you. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. Now, before I go on, I want to make one last point to everything I've been saying. God has already been doing this all along, this whole idea of using architectural picture to paint something bigger and better, because this is typology. Is Jesus dying on the cross all about getting a shepherd in Israel one day? Is Jesus really a lamb? Is he really a lion? Is it really just about a physical two sticks perpendicular to each other? No, it's always been about these pictures painting bigger concepts. And so that's the other thing I want to say is like, if this is what God's always been doing, it's not about a star. It's about the star representing the Holy Spirit. It's not about fire and a pillar. Okay, it's about the Holy Spirit. These are all architectural pictures painting bigger concepts. And he's doing the same thing with the temple. So he begins to describe this temple to him. Now, we're not going to go through all this architectural language. I do recommend that you read it. This is the Word of God. It's important to study. And if you haven't, please do. But I'm going to kind of break down the main ideas here. The point is not to get wrapped up in all the architectural measurements. The point is to get wrapped up in the new things that God is doing. This temple is the same, but it's different. And that's what I'm going to mostly focus on here. So the sameness means that this is still the plan of God. This is not a new temple, a new idea that God has came out. It's not plan B. It's the same thing that God has been doing all along. But the most significant measurements... And the picture of the temple is actually not the temple at all. Okay, what is new? God has been talking about the temple and the tabernacle for a long time. What you need to pay attention to is the things that are new in this. And what is new is the courtyard fence and the gates of that courtyard fence. That's what's drastically new and different. And that's what we're going to focus on. The courtyard wall around the temple 
was 175 feet wide and long. So this is a bigger courtyard than the previous tabernacle. Now remember the last time we saw measurements was the tabernacle. We did not see really any specific detailed measurements when Solomon rebuilt the temple. The courtyard wall is about 10.5 feet tall. There are three gates, one in the south, one in the east, and one in the north. And the gates were 43.75 feet wide and 105 feet tall. The entrance of the gate is 17.5 feet wide and 22.75 feet tall. The temple was 35 feet wide and 105 feet long and 35 feet tall. Now, I know I just threw a bunch of numbers at you, but here's the point. How does the courtyard fence and size compare to the gates and size? Height. The courtyard gate, sorry, the courtyard fence is smaller than the gates. In the tabernacle, there was a courtyard fence and the gate was the same height as the courtyard fence. With this new temple, the gates are way longer, bigger than the courtyard fence. How many gates are there? Three. One in the south, one in the north, one in the east. How many gates were in the tabernacle? One. Now remember, we went through the tabernacle and had all the symbology pointing towards Jesus. And the one thing that I made, there's two points I said. The tabernacle overall is making two points. One, there's only one way in. It's incredibly difficult to get in. It requires blood sacrifice, rituals, and only the Jew can get into the courtyard, and only the priests in the Holy of Holies, holy place, and only the high priest one time in the holy place. And it all requires death, blood, sacrifice, and ritual, and there's only one gate, one way in. The whole point of the tabernacle is that your sin has completely separated and removed you from the presence of God. But the other point that the tabernacle was making is, but there was a way in. There was a gate, and there was a sacrifice that would get you in. Those are the two main points that the tabernacle was making. And it's structure. The third and final point that it was making is that God put it among the people, meaning that he wanted to dwell with them, and to represent his presence. So what's the whole point of a fence or a wall? Keep people out. What's the whole point of a gate? get people in. So what point are you making when your wall is smaller than your gates? And now you have three gates. You want more people in. And the courtyard and its measurements, width and length, and the temple are bigger now. That's the main point. The main point is that the dwelling place is now bigger and that God is allowing more people to come in than trying to keep them out. Now here's the other thing. There's three gates. What gate is missing? Western gate. Now remember, west, east, north, and south represent the directions on the compass. And by invoking all four winds or all four directions, God is making the point that it's all the world. But why would he leave the western gate out? What way are you going when you walk through a western gate? Eastward. And you're moving away from God. And you're moving into judgment. And so he eliminates that. So you know, because the law of first mention, 
East has been used over and over and over again as walking out of the presence of God in rebellion or God kicking you out in judgment. So you also know over and over and over again the four directions represents all the world. So you put that together and you realize the law of first mention, the way it's been constantly used on this, and the law of first mention, the way it's constantly used on this means this. This is all four directions, but God can't put the western gate there because it will contradict his other metaphor that he's been painting. So in that sense, you shouldn't kind of think there is a western gate. But metaphorically speaking, there can't be because it ruins the other metaphor he's been developing all along. But you put it together with the metaphor of the four directions, and what he's saying is all the nations are coming into this. And you put that in the context of God in Ezekiel 37, saying, I'm going to bring my people from all the nations. And you realize the whole point of this is that the sanctuary of God is being open to all people now. Now, what allows all people to come into the temple now? Well, yes, he's going to go on. He's going to talk about the Davidic king. And the Davidic king is going to stand at the entrance of the eastern gate. And he's going to rule there. Why? Because the Davidic king, the new Davidic king, is going to change something. And it's going to allow people to come into this temple in a new way. And it's going to allow people from all nations to come into this temple in a new way and dwell there. And this is important because when we get to the Gospels, Jesus uses all that tabernacle language and he says, I am the light of the world, speaking the light in the tabernacle. I am the gate, no one enters it except through me, speaking the gate of the tabernacle. I am the bread of life, speaking to the bread, the table of showbread in the tabernacle. He gets up on the Mount of Olives or the Mount of Transfiguration, turns into this big ball of fire and light, like the Shekinah glory. He says, the Father and I are one. And he starts, he goes through everything in the tabernacle and says, I am, I am, I am. So what you begin to realize is that the temple is Jesus. The temple is Jesus. And so what you're realizing is that Jesus is going to do something where there's going to be more gates now and fewer walls, so to speak. And I know that's not literally because there's one wall, but it's smaller. And it's faced every direction. So what does Jesus say when he's in Nazareth? He says, reading from Isaiah, I have come for the lost, and I've come for the lame, and I'm going to bring them from all over the places. And Nazareth, he says, just like Elijah was not accepted by his own people, but he went to the Gentiles, and they came to him, so it is with the Son of Man. He says, I have sheep that you do not know about, the Gentiles. He goes to the Gentiles, and he, makes, he, he heals them, accepts them. Every time he's with a Jew... And he heals him. He says, don't tell anybody. Every time he goes to a Gentile and heals him, he says, go tell everybody. And he's making it very clear that his ministry is about all the nations. Then he tells parables about a great king having a banquet and going to all the nations and all the lame and all the people, crippled and that kind of stuff, and bringing them all in. And the, his own people won't accept him. And so he's making it clear this temple is not literal. This temple is me. I am the gate, and I am the only way in. And my people know my voice, and they dwell with me, and I'm going to all the nations. Then when you get to John chapter 13, 14, 15, he says, remain in me, and I'll remain in you. 
That's entering temp temple language. Now, I'm going to come back to that point in just a little bit because I'm, this is going to be my home run, so to speak, when I come back to it. Now, well, let me rephrase that. This is not my home run. This is God's home run. Um, I'm just going to communicate his home run to you. This is the main focus here. Do not get lost in that. Once he describes his building of the temple, he then describes three new regulations that he's going to introduce with this temple. And this is chapters 43 through 46. So he describes a lot of the measurements in 40, 41 and 42. Then he gives new regulations. And he's given instructions concerning how to do this. And he even makes the point that there will be sacrifices, but he makes the point that the sacrifices are more festival, de like, um, like dedicating the temple kind of thing, not like a mandatory you have to. The first regulation is this, that foreigners are prohibited from entering the temple. Now, this obviously can't be foreigners, because God has over and over and over again made it clear that the foreigners are going to be invited to the mountain of God, and they will enter the mountain of God, and they will enter the temple of God. He made that point in Isaiah chapter 2. He pointed that out in Micah chapter 4. Okay, he's said that over and over again. So he's either contradicting himself or he means something else. And what he means is the other foreigner, the foreigner who did not accept Christ and come to him. So the, they've already made this clear. So the context says those people who do not come to Yahweh in faith, because he's also said, but I'll judge all the foreigners and I'll destroy the foreigners. Now, what you need to understand is that there's this language here that whenever we get the prophets, God keeps talking about all the nations will come to the mountain of God. But when he uses the word foreigners, he means people who are foreign to the covenant of God. And that's how he begins to distinguish them. All the nations are welcome to the kingdom of God, but foreigners are not allowed to enter. Now, he's not anti-foreigners of Israel in a political kind of a way. What he means is foreigners of people who do not have faith. That's the only criteria for citizenship. Citizenship to the new kingdom of God is based on faith. So if you are a foreigner to the kingdom of God, then you have no faith. So you cannot use this as an anti-foreigner build a wall kind of a thing from the Bible. Because you have to understand the context, foreigner means without faith. That's the only criteria to enter the kingdom of God is by faith. It's the only criteria. So he says no people without faith are allowed in this new temple. Now that's okay because Gog has already been destroyed. The second criteria is because of the unfaithfulness of the Levites and their duties in the temple would be limited. They would be able to serve in the temple gates and make sacrifices, but they would not be able to enter the temple and handle the holy items. So the priests that normally were maintaining and running the temple and cleansing it and keeping it right are not allowed to do that anymore. Now that's interesting because without the priests, there is no tabernacle or temple. What happens when you violate the, the law? You go to the priest and they sacrifice for you. What happens if you want to have a presence of God? You go to the priest who maintain the temple and the tabernacle will keep it falling apart. What happens when you, you want to learn about the covenant or you violate the covenant? You go to the priests and they deal with it. The priests are the foundation of the covenant. And this is the, the point that the author of Hebrews is making. Without the priests, there can be no temple or Mosaic law. The entire Mosaic law and the entire temple is built on the backs of the priests. And this is why he says Jesus was not born a Levite. 
He was born of the tribe of Judah. Because if he was born a Levite, he would have to serve in the Mosaic Covenant and serve in the Mosaic Temple and Tabernacle. But God did not want that. He wanted a new covenant and a new temple. And so Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And because he came from the tribe of Judah, the law forbid anybody who was not a Levite to serve as the Mosaic Covenant bearers and in the tabernacle, which means Jesus bringing a new tabernacle and a new covenant. The law does not speak of the tribe of Judah. And he goes on, therefore, it's built on Jesus. And then he launches into the description of the tabernacle and talks about how the tabernacle is just an external symbol of something better yet to come. And now that he's spoken through his son, why would you want to go back to tablets of stone in a tent? Because now you have the son. So he makes the point that God doesn't want to rebuild the Mosaic Covenant or rebuild the temple. He wants to rebuild well, he wants to build something new through his son. And so why are the priests now regulated to the outside? Because it's not this Garden of Eden. This temple is not regulated by the Mosaic Law or the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law. In fact, that's the point the author of Hebrews is making, is that the law was initiated by the priests making sacrifice. The temple was dedicated and cleansed by the priests making sacrifice. You can't have any of that without Levitical priests. But they're not allowed in this. So this is not anything to do with the Mosaic Law. And if you're a Jew reading this, you're going to get it. You may not like it. The Pharisees did not like it. But they also couldn't contradict it because they also were desperately trying to obey God. This is what he says. So the third is that the prince would have the land closest to the temple and lead the people in worship and make atonement for the people. So the third is that the Davidic descendant is going to have the closest place to the temple out of anybody, and he's going to lead all of the worship. Now, the word worship all throughout the First Testament in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, whenever it's used, it's always used of the dedication of the temple or tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and the coming into the presence of God. So who's going to be in charge of that? The Davidic king. But the Davidic king is not allowed to be a priest. Remember, God killed Saul for acting like a priest as being a king. And this is the point. What is the punishment for acting as king and priest simultaneously? Death. But it's death under the Mosaic law. Abraham functioned as king and priest. But there was no law yet to condemn him. Then the law came along, condemned you functioning as king and priest. But then David comes along one day, and he writes Psalm 110. And he says, my Lord, he says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool. Now, they taught, the Pharisees taught, he's talking about two lords. He says, Yahweh said to my Lord, so the Lord is over David, sit at my right hand. And you're like, every Jew knew, like, wait a minute, there's nobody higher than David. Saul doesn't count because God didn't like him and he killed him. And he's the, the, it's the Davidic line. So who's higher than David? Only Yahweh. But he already mentioned Yahweh. And they mentioned this Lord between Yahweh and David. So who in the world that can be? So they're like, well, we don't know because there's nothing higher than David than Yahweh. And there's not two gods, so it can't be that. So it must be Solomon because he's in the line of David and he was great. So then Jesus comes along and look and he says, hey, you want me to answer all these questions about who I am? I'll tell you who I am. 
You'll know who I am when you can answer this question. When David said, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, who is he talking about? Who is the Lord? When you can answer that question, you'll know who I am. And they couldn't answer it. Well, the point is this. Jesus says, you've always taught that the son is the one who is over David. But everybody in every culture knows the son is never greater than the father. So it can't be Solomon or any descendant of David. When Caiaphas is judging Jesus in the upper room or in the, the, his, um, his palace the night before his crucifixion, he says, who do you, do you say you're the king of the Jews? The only time that Jesus ever answered Pilate or Caiaphas or Ananias or any of them of who he was was that moment. And he says, you said it. Now, that's not enough to get you killed. And that's not him claiming to be that middle Lord. But Jesus didn't stop there. He goes further and says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds to judge all of humanity. And remember, the only thing that rides the clouds is God. And the only thing that judges all the world is God. Jesus answered the question of who that Lord was right then and there. They couldn't answer it. And the exam was over with, and they failed. And he, Jesus says, okay, now the exam's over with, and you'll fail. I'll tell you that question. The answer now. The answer is, it's me. And the only way I can't be truly David's son and be greater than him, it's not possible. Therefore, the only way to be greater than David is to be something more than David. But there is nothing greater than David than God. So I am God, and I am the Lord over David. And he makes that point. But then he goes one step further because David, I don't think he got what he was saying, but he was inspired by God. Because in that same Psalm 110, he says, your Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Enemies make your footstool, stepping on them and crushing their teeth and breaking their necks. Okay, defeating them. That's Gog, the defeat of Gog. So who's going to defeat Gog? Jesus. Then he goes on and says, behold, you're in the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek was in First Genesis 13, and he was a king and a high priest. And Hebrews picks up on this passage of 110 and he says that jesus is in the order of melchizedek but also talks about him from being judah and being king david began to see a day that the messiah would be a priest and a king simultaneously and the only way psalm could be fulfilled is that the law was done away with and that's what he's saying here this isn't the temple of the mosaic law This is something completely new and different outside the law that Jesus is going to inaugurate. Because there are no priests maintaining it and regulating it. It's open to all the nations. There is no need for continual sacrifices to get in it. And the king of David's line is the one who cleanses the temple, sacrifices on your behalf, gets you into the presence of God, and sits at the entrance of the gate. And Jesus comes along and says, the Father and I are one. And I am the gate, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I go to a place to prepare for you. And I must die so that you can enter. And he starts using all this language, but he's also calling himself the king of the Jews because he comes from David. But he also refers himself as a priest, but he also refers himself as a shepherd, but he also refers himself as a lamb, sacrifice, also a lion, kingship. And he starts taking all these ropes that have been developed for thousands of years, and he starts tying them all together into his belt. And he starts saying, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. But what I am not is the Mosaic Covenant. 
in the temple, the literal, physical one, because I'm building something better and newer. This, see, when you, when you look at this language here, really look into it, you realize this is not about a building. This is not about a building. Ezekiel sees his vision, the Shekinah glory of God coming back into this new temple. He sees it riding from the east, moving westward. It comes over the Mount of Olives, goes down the Kidron Valley, or over the Kidron Valley, and goes back into the temple, and the temple begins to shine. Now, what's interesting is it never is called the temple there. Never in those chapters is it ever called the temple. It's just called the house of God. It's called Jerusalem. It's called the new kingdom. So he even avoids temple language when he's in the book of Ezekiel. He doesn't even use the word temple. He talks about the glory of God returning back and the river of life coming out and going everywhere. Chapter 47. Chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I noticed water was flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from under the right side of the temple from the south of the altar. He led me out by the way of the north gate and brought me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. I noticed that the water was trickling out from the south side. Now, there's only one place that we've ever seen temple language with a river flowing out of it. Anybody remember? The Garden of Eden. He builds this Garden of Eden, and he calls the word for garden is the same word for paradise, the same word for temple. He calls the hedge the same word for the fence around the tabernacle. He tells Adam and Eve to keep and guard and till the land, which is the only ever used of the priesthood, taking care of the tabernacle. And then he makes some kings by making the rulers and seduers. So he places them in this garden that's described like a temple with a hedge, a fence around it like temple. And he tells them to do priestly duties of taking care of the temple. And he makes some kings. They're kings and high priests simultaneously, male and female, working in the temple of God. And a river flows out of it and splits into four and goes into the entire world. And all of a sudden, he sees this new temple, and he says, there's a river coming out of it, and it flows in the entire world. What's interesting, you're like, yeah, but this is moving eastward. Because the river of God is redemption. He's going to take the thing. Where did moving eastward, being a sign of rebellion against God or judgment against God, first begin? The Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve got kicked out. What's he doing here? The river of redemption in life is flowing towards the east because it's redeeming the most unredeemable thing there is, for lack of a better phrase, where the, 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 the need for redemption first began. The first sin began in the temple where they had to walk out of his presence. It's all being redeemed. The last path of sin and rebellion and being casted out of God's presence is going to be redeemed. And eastward will no longer be bad anymore. Because moving eastward won't be walking away from God because everything will be God now. And I don't mean everything will be God, but everything will be the kingdom of God. I need to phrase that. Everything will be the kingdom of God now. So there will be no leaving the kingdom of God because all those who are foreigners have been dealt with and Gog has been dealt with. And all that's left are the resurrected people of God with the spirit of God breathed into them. There is no more eastward in a metaphorical sense. And so the river leaves and it goes and it says it goes to the border and it goes past the border. Wait a minute. The promised land is only the border. But this river goes past the border. 
And it goes, and it goes to the Dead Sea, and it pours into the Dead Sea, and all of a sudden the Dead Sea starts turning into the most luscious, life-producing, tropical kind of place, and all the land around the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea is the deadest place in the entire world. Nothing lives there. So he's going to take the deadest, most anti-garden language that nothing grows, no plant life, no fish, no animals can drink there. All the things that God created, humans, animals, fish, Insects, plants, all that cannot thrive at the Dead Sea is the epitome of judgment and death and barrenness of sin. And not only is this river going to flow out of this new Garden of Eden, it's going to go past the borders of Israel, and it's going to go to the Dead Sea, and it's going to take the most lifeless, barren thing and turn it into life and turn it all into the Garden of Eden. What was Adam and Eve supposed to do? They were supposed to expand the garden, but instead they allowed evil to come into the garden. They joined it. Or chaos. They allow chaos to come in. So now what is God saying? I'm going to do what you were supposed to do. My prince is going to sit at the entrance of the gate. And a river is going to flow out of the side of the temple. And it's going to go to every part of the world and make the most barren dead thing now life-giving. I'm going to make the entire plant, the Garden of Eden, like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. This isn't a temple. This is the new kingdom of God. On earth. This is the last chapter of Revelation in Ezekiel First Testament language. This is the picture he's painting here. Then what does he do? He goes and he starts describing the tribal allotments for each tribe. Why? Because the first thing that God did when he brought Joseph or Joshua and his people into the promised land is he told them where they were allowed to live. So now that he's rebuilt the Garden of Eden, he gives the tribal allotments again making it clear that Israel, the ethnic people, will be included in this. So he's used the language that I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm kicking the priest out, so to speak, to the outermost parts, and I'm going to invite all the foreigners in, and they're all going to come in. And the kingdom of God is going to be about the Gentiles. But then he ends with talking about the ethnic people of Israel getting tribal allotments in the land, the land that he promised them, the literal Israel. Because he's saying, I made promises to you too, and I will keep them. Yes, God will bring the ethnic people of Israel out of time out one day. And he will bring them to a physical, literal land of Israel and restore them. But not until after he's rebuilt the Garden of Eden on earth. You want to know what the sign of Jesus coming back again? It's when massive people from all nations start coming back to Christ. It's not the building of a physical temple. It's not regulations and rituals. It's when revival begins to happen around the world. What is it that God commanded you to do? Go out and make disciples to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what you should be looking for. He told Adam and Eve, expand the garden. He came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you as a blessing to the world. He came and he built a tabernacle and a law and said, now be a light to the world and get them all to be a part of it. They failed to do it. Jesus came and became a light to the world and he brought all the Gentiles in. Then he left and he said, go out and make disciples. And then the book of Revelation ends with him bringing the kingdom of God to earth and an uncountable number of people from every tribe and language and nation are standing at the throne of God. Revelation 14. What, what should you be doing and looking forward to? Building the kingdom of God. And it doesn't just mean witnessing to people. It means changing the world. And I've already talked about this. Expanding the garden is not just witnessing. 
expand the guardian's redeeming politics, redeeming psychology, redeeming medical world, redeeming your neighborhood, redeeming the way we do business, redeeming the way we do taxes. It's making everything look like God. And I guarantee you, if Christians start changing the world, if we start doing psychology and business and taxes and, and neighborhood parties and all that kind of stuff in a different way, where we're loving each other and loving other people in a unique way, they will be more attracted to the gospel message that we know it as. The gospel message is fixing a broken world. And that includes people, animals, creation, institutions, ideas, and everything. That's what this new temple is. And the prince is going to stand at the entrance. He's going to govern it all. This is how Ezekiel ends. And this is the last prophet of the exile. There's a few more prophets that are coming, but they're post-exile. And this is what the note leaves on.